The um, classic movie Grand Canyon begins with a, the scene of a wealthy white lawyer uh, driving home at the end of the day uh, in uh, Los Angeles. He, he gets lost and winds up in a poor black neighborhood. And then to make matters worse, his car breaks down and he soon finds himself surrounded by an armed gang that is telling him to get out of his car. At just that moment, just in the nick of time, a tow truck driver pulls up and, uh, and he, he asks the, the gang leader if he will let this man go. And the gang leader says, why should I do that? And here is Sonny's answer. supposed to work like this i mean maybe you don't know that but this ain't the way it's supposed to be i'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if i can that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off everything's supposed to be different than what it is there's so much in this world that is not the way it's supposed to be not the way that god intended it to be everything is supposed to be different than this we long for things to be put right around us, don't we? That there would be an end of violence and disease and hunger and abuse and war and poverty. We long for things to be put right between us. That there would be an end to hate and unforgiveness and judgment and prejudice and separation along lines of difference. And we ache for everything to be put right inside of us. That there would be an end to selfishness and pride and shame and anxiousness and fear and, and despair. Our Advent series, Everything Sad Coming Untrue, is about the promise that God made to do just that. To take everything that isn't the way it's supposed to be and to put it right. And it's about the way that that promise began to be fulfilled and the way that that promise will ultimately be fulfilled. Our focus this morning is on that familiar passage from Isaiah chapter 9, the one that Jude Wilcox quoted from memory for us this morning with such earnestness. It's one of the most moving pictures. Wow. But to hear the explosive force of this promise, the way that we should hear it, we really have to put it in context, and not just in the context of Isaiah's other writings, but in a much wider context, in the context of the widest story possible, to, to hear these words in the story of God's dealings with humanity. The starting point, as told to us in the opening chapters of the Bible, is a God who has always existed, created humanity for relationship with himself. He established the first man and the first woman in a garden paradise in which they could not only enjoy each other in perfect harmony and peace, but enjoy him. A perfect setting for perfect human beings to enjoy a perfect relationship with a perfect God. But almost from the start, things went wrong. Exercising the remarkable gift of free will which, with which God clothed humanity, they promptly chose to receive the gift and to reject the giver of it. They pushed God out of the center and they arrogated to themselves that place of rule in their own lives, living life on their own terms. And their defiance of God's design 
his design, which was that we would live our lives with God and for God. Their defiance sent a ripple fracturing its way through this world, leaving nothing intact. As a result of their rebellion against God, God allowed a curse to settle on the world. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, God says, Cursed is the earth because of you. In a moment, all that was perfect became imperfect. All that was whole became broken. All that was unified was splintered apart and into a world of life, death was introduced. Paul tells us that from that point on, creation has been longing to be restored to the paradise that it once was. When everything was rightly related to God and to one another. Rather than how we are now with humanity finding itself separated from God, alienated from one another and at odds with the world. Romans chapter 8, the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought, be brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Incidentally, if you are considering the Christian faith, I would argue that the Judeo-Christian account of the creation and the fall of the world offers a better explanation for why things are the way that we experience in this, them in this world. That the world is so beautiful, but so broken. And that we human beings who inhabit it, we are majestic, but we are majestic messes. I believe that Christianity offers a better explanation for that experience that we all have as human beings than any other world religion or philosophy. Well, the next part of the story centers on the prophets. The prophets were a group of poetic messengers that God raised up to bring to light humanity's spiritual condition, to hold a mirror up before them, and to urge rebellious humanity to turn back to God. Often, the prophets found dramatic and compelling ways to describe the human condition, ways that captured the imagination. Here are three of a number of different metaphors that prophets like Isaiah used to describe the broken world around them and the broken world that they found within them. Images that would have spoken powerfully to people living in ancient times. As you think about what's going on in our world around us and, and within our hearts within us, which of these connects with you the most? One image of spiritual brokenness and sin was darkness. In a world without electricity, the night is a domain of fear and vulnerability. It's a place of disorientation and uncertainty. Without light, we feel blind and, and we wander about, lost, uncertain where we are and, and groping to find our way. Another image of spiritual brokenness is the desert. For people living in a harsh, arid climate, the desert represented a realm of thirst and threat. Without water, it was a forbidding land, alien and harsh and unsafe and hostile, without growth, without blossom, without fruit, stripped of beauty and barren of life. Another image that they used to represent the idea of spiritual brokenness was discord. The ancient Near East was a land divided up between dozens of warring city-states that typically saw each other as threats and enemies. 
Without peace, they were constantly at each other's throats. Hostile, divided, separating apart and squaring off, battling and injuring one another and leaving a wake of death and loss. Those are metaphors with which the prophets sought to capture what, it's, what life is like for an individual and what life is like for a whole world that is not properly centered on God. So let me just stop and ask which of those images spoke most to you as you think about humanity's plight and perhaps your own. Where do you see the darkness and confusion of everyone lost? Where do you see the desert of struggling to survive and flourish? And, and where do you see the discord of creature turned against creature? Well, then, into the, the brokenness of our spiritually wayward world, God began to speak a message of hope through these prophets. He promised a better future, one in which everything wrong in this world would be put right. And he promised the divine king who would come and usher us into the future. This is where that passage from Isaiah 9 comes in. It is one of several places in Isaiah's writings where God gives the promise of a king who will come and put everything right. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of his greatness, or the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with righteousness and justice from that time on and forever, and the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This king, this Messiah will come and establish his kingdom with justice and righteousness. In other words, making things just right. Reversing the curse that was laid upon this land because of humanity's rebellion against God. Our humanity's dismissing God from the center. The curse of darkness, the curse of the desert, and the curse of discord. Let's look at three passages from Isaiah that describe the curse being reversed when the Messiah comes. First, in chapter 9, Isaiah speaks of the Messiah bringing light into the darkness. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned to a world that is lost and confused spiritually, living in fear, each one wandering off in his or her own direction. The Messiah will come like the rising sun and bring spiritual illumination, bringing the world out of darkness and into the light. Isaiah also speaks of the Messiah bringing life to the desert. Isaiah chapter 35, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God, and water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. These are photos of Death Valley before and then during a rare event called a super bloom. To a world that is spiritually parched and barren, the Messiah will bring the water of life and the desert of human existence will be transformed into a garden of life and beauty. 
And finally, in chapter 11, Isaiah speaks about the Messiah bringing peace where there is discord. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. World War II decimated whole regions of Europe as Nazi Germany waged war on the free world. Here are a few pictures that capture specific places in Europe during the war, and then those very same places after peace was declared, war was ended, and those cities were rebuilt. They are a picture of the way that the Messiah will come and turn the world around, making all things new, bringing an end to hostility, ushering in peace, bringing together those who are divided, healing wounds, repairing the land, reconciling hearts, and having brothers and sisters, instead of being sworn enemies, become friends. For 800 years, the promises echoed through the corridors of human history, promising the coming dawn, promising the coming reign, promising the coming peace when the Messiah comes. Dark is the world through which we search, lurch, longing for light. Dry is the world in which we thirst, cursed, weeping for water. Divided the world in which we war, warn, pining for peace. Messiah, sun certain, will come, will come. Promise, repromise, the verses rehearsed without end. Will come and, and dawn day in the darkness. Will come and loose blooms in the desert. Will come, share shalom in the discord. The curse is reversed. Messiah will come. Welcome, Messiah. Then 2,000 years ago, true to God's promise of nearly 1,000 years, the Messiah was born. God comes in human flesh to a small town called Bethlehem in the land that we now know as Israel and is heralded by heaven as the one in whom God will fulfill all of his promises at the moment of his birth, angels appear to shepherds out in the fields and they give the birth announcement. The angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. The promised Messiah, God's great promise keeper is born. Jesus, the son of Mary in the lineage of David, he begins to establish his kingdom in this world. But his ministry unfolds in unexpected ways. Forgiveness is given, but sin persists. Healing is extended, but sickness is not swallowed up. New life is poured out, but spiritual death persists. Captives are set free, but the occupying army still chokes the land. Peace is offered, but wars and rumors of wars continue. John, the forerunner, is even prompted to go back to Jesus and ask, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Gradually, it becomes evident that what Isaiah and the other prophets anticipated as a single event, the Messiah will come, the curse will be reversed, all will be made right, will actually be spread across two events. 
Jesus comes the first time to set things in motion, to establish the kingdom. And he reverses the curse in individual human hearts. But it will not be until Jesus returns that all things will be brought to completion and all of God's promises will be fulfilled. His second coming will be very different from his first. Jesus says in Luke chapter 21, you will, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and with great glory. In his first coming, he came to us as suffering servant in gentleness and humility. At his second coming, he will return as conquering king in power and majesty. He will come and establish his kingdom on earth once and for all. That moment is described in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. When Jesus returns, he will bring human history to a close and he will reverse the curse of darkness, desert, and discord globally, universally, comprehensively, once and for all and forever. All will be made new and put right. Listen to the way that that, that is described using figurative language in the last chapter of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22. Listen for those themes of light coming into darkness and, and water coming into desert and peace coming into discord. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. And they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or even the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. So that's how things will be one day. But that's not how things are today, is it? We live today in what one New Testament scholar described as the already, but not yet. Jesus came as king to establish his kingdom and to reverse the curse. There's the already, but that promise will only find its complete fulfillment when he returns. There's the not yet. So here's what that already, but not yet reality of the kingdom of God means for you and me today in practical terms. First, it means that you and I can rejoice in the already joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. While it is true that the, the curse has not been completely reversed. The new day has dawned. The desert has started to bloom. The warring has started to come to an end in the hearts of men and women and young people all around this world. Slowly, but unrelentingly, one life at a time, Jesus advances his kingdom and he reverses the curse as people open up their hearts to him as savior and put their trust in him as king. Listen to these passages that describe how in his first coming, Jesus has already set about reversing the, the curse in ways that you and I can experience today. He has come as God's light in our darkness. John chapter eight, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
He has come as God's water in our desert. John chapter 4, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And he has come as God's peace in the discord. John chapter 14 and then 16. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled and don't be afraid. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is. Jesus has not yet reversed the curse globally, but he will. And until then, we can look to Jesus to reverse the curse individually, personally, one heart at a time. Have you opened the door to your darkness and stepped into his light? Have you turned the face of your desert up toward his living water? Have you waved a flag of truce in the middle of your discord and opened your heart to the Prince of Peace? What is keeping you from putting the weight of your life on Jesus today, right now, trusting him as your king and as your deliverer? So the second thing that the already but not yet reality of the kingdom means for us today is that we can be honest about the difficulty and even the disappointment of the not yet. These days between the first coming of Jesus and his return are a time of longing, of aching, This world is still very broken. It's still full of pain and loss and grief and and fear and hostility and division and death. And how we long for our hope to find its fulfillment, for this world to be put right, for God to make all things new. In almost the very last words in the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, Jesus says, yes, I am coming soon. And then John gives voice to the longing felt by every single one of his followers when he writes, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Where do you most long for the world to be put right? Where do you most deeply lament the frustration of the curse in which much of this world still remains bound? Part of how we as followers of Christ express our confidence that God will keep his promises and our hope that he will return is in our prayers of longing and lament as we join together with our brothers and sisters from around the globe and we cry out to God to make all things new. Um, And here is the unexpected third thing that the already but not yet reality of the kingdom means for you and me today as followers of Christ. During this time, when we rejoice in the first coming and at the same time long for his return, Jesus calls us to join him as curse reversers in this world, serving as his agents and representatives, his sent ones, called to help make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. In a stunning turn, each phrase that Jesus uses to describe his own ministry, he turns around and applies to our ministries. 
Listen to these passages that talk about how Jesus commissions us, how he co-missions with us to join him in the work of reversing the curse in this world while we wait for his return. Calling us to shine with him as light in the darkness, Jesus says to us in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Calling us to join him in quenching this desert world's thirst. Jesus says to us in John 7, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And calling us to join him on his mission of bringing peace into this world's discord, Jesus says to us in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the peacemakers, for they are called children of God. And in John chapter 20, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Loving our neighbors isn't just a good thing to do. Loving our neighbors is how the church fulfills its calling between the first coming of Jesus and his return. As we hold out the word of life to this lost and warring and dying world. Our world is broken and, and you and I long for it to change, to be set right. So that once again, it will perfectly reflect the heart of God who created it and who lays claim to it. How will that come about? Not through our efforts. Only Jesus can make the world right. Only Jesus can make all things new. But until he returns, Jesus calls us to be part of his work of putting individual lives right. By sharing with them the hope and the promise that we have in Christ, who is our light and our life and our peace. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And God desires that we would be part of seeing that become a reality in the lives of the people he has placed around us. And this is not just what God desires of us. It is what the world desires from us as well. Listen again to the passage I read at the beginning of this message from Romans chapter 8. Listen especially to the first line. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. This world isn't the way it's supposed to be. Everything is supposed to be different than it is. And this curse-bound world cries out for the children of God to step forward and to reach out to that world with the hope that we have. It waits in eager expectation for us, for followers of Jesus, to be revealed by our love in this world and by our lives, to speak the words that will break the curse and to bring them into the light and the life and the peace of Jesus. Jesus says to you, Jesus says to me, you are the light of the world. Rivers of living water will flow from within you. Peace I give to you, and as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. God is calling us this morning to be part of the redemptive work that he is accomplishing through his Son in this world. So what is your response to the King? How will you offer yourselves in his service, as together we wait for his return. 
I want to invite our worship team to come forward now to lead us in our closing song. As they do that, I just want to ask you to take this moment of quiet and ask God to lead you in discerning what is the way that this week you could be part of bringing light and life and peace into the part of the world where God has placed you.